Okay. Wow, I'll try to get us out of here at a decent time. Um, let me read. I know Mike read part of it, but I just want to read uh, part of the Easter story this morning. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started to the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I think it's funny that the guy who wrote this story made sure that he told that he won. <laughs> he bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth that was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still didn't understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated there where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am descending. I'm ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, when the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. So I know Comic Sans is a terrible font to use. Um, at least if you've studied uh, graphic design at all, everyone says never use Comic Sans. But there's a reason for it. And that's because when I was a kid, um, I used to be an avid collector of comic books. I guess I loved comic books when, when I was a kid. Um, to be truthful, maybe not avid, because uh, an avid collector would always keep, keep it in the sleeve in mint condition, and I couldn't ever really see the point of not reading the comic book. So all mine were out of the sleeves, but I had stacks and stacks of comics. In 1993, DC Comics came out with an issue called The Death of Superman. To be honest, I wasn't a huge fan of Superman. He was always a little too powerful for my taste. Um, just kind of unstoppable, and probably, if I'm honest, a little too clean cut. Uh, I much more preferred Marvel Comics X-Men. Mutants are way cooler anyways than some guy whose planet went supernova and came and just automatically had superpowers, but um, see, come on, those guys are cool. <laughs> um, so. Because I wasn't really a big fan of Superman anyways, it didn't really bother me that much that DC had killed him off. I mean, you know, I was a little confused as to why they would kill off such an icon of superheroes, but I wasn't really gutted or anything. Um, what I should have realized 
was that it was all a gimmick anyways. Less than a year later, DC came out with a series culminating in the resurrection of Superman called The Return of Superman. The thing is that iconic superheroes can't stay dead, right? You can't kill off Superman. Unfortunately, I think that this is kind of the way we read the Easter story. A lot of us read the Easter story as if it's the Bible's climax of Jesus' death. We knew all along that God just couldn't stay dead. And we were waiting with bated breath for the end of the story. But the thing is that this isn't the end of the story. The resurrection, the Easter story, isn't the end of the story. Let me pray. Jesus, we are amazed. We stand amazed at you. That you gave it all. That you were the logos of God who existed for all time. And yet, because of your deep love for us, God, you came and you incarnate yourself as one of us and lived and walked as one of us. And not only that, but you suffered the most horrendous suffering. You were beaten, you were scorned, you were rejected, and ultimately, you were killed in a really horrendous way as a criminal. And it was all because of your love for us. We just thank you so much. Amen. So Jesus wasn't resurrected just because he's God. When we think of the resurrection, we think, well, of course, he's God, so he had to rise in the end because God couldn't stay dead. But it misses the point. That's the way comic books end. God is spirit, right? So, of course, God could have stayed dead. God could have easily stayed dead, at least bodily, because he's spirit, and you can't kill God. His spirit didn't die. It was his body that died. And his spirit wasn't resurrected. It was Jesus' body that was resurrected on the third day. So why was it that Jesus was resurrected? Why was he bodily resurrected? I think Paul gets at it, and it's because his body, Jesus' body, is our body. God can't die. God is spirit. Death is a non-issue for God. But Jesus died bodily, and he was crucified, that we would be crucified with him. So we died with Jesus and we rise with Jesus. The story of the resurrection isn't the climactic story of a superhero who died and then had to be resurrected because he's an icon. The story of the resurrection is that God loved us so much that he died in our place so that we would rise with him. In his resurrection, he defeated death. Our death, not his death. It's an Easter tradition that we always cry out, Hallelujah, he is risen. And it's true. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. 
But how often do we cry out with the same heartfelt gratitude, hallelujah, we are risen. Our religious nature sometimes recoils from this thinking. We're so quick to look at the cross and the resurrection and say, it's all about you, Jesus. It's all for your glory. But I think Jesus would say to us, um, actually, no, it's not. I did this for you. Jesus wasn't lacking any glory before he came down to earth as a human and before he died on the cross and before he was resurrected. He wasn't lacking any, any glory. And he didn't get some kind of top up for it. Jesus didn't empty himself, become a slave, suffer brutal things, and die a criminal's death because he was somehow kind of insecure and needed us to tell him how good he is. He did it, Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him. And that joy is you. The joy of humanity restored to union with God. So I said, I think Paul gets at it. In Romans 6, he writes, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we trust that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, know that you yourselves are dead in relation to sin, but you're alive in relation to God in Christ Jesus. He says again in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what does this mean? What does resurrection look like? Does it mean we no longer face death? Obviously not, because every single person in this room at some point will probably die unless Jesus comes back first. So I think it's important to clarify here that just as Paul both spoke of resurrection in the future, he also spoke of resurrection in the now. He spoke of a bodily resurrection in the future return of Jesus, but he speaks of a resurrection that we live even at this moment. So I'm not primarily speaking of the future resurrection. What I want to talk about today is being resurrected now, how we live out, what does resurrection look like in our lives right now. One day, we will be unified with God where, without any barrier. Without, there'll, there'll no longer be this darkened glass that we look through now. So I, I have a confession to make. I, I preached a very similar sermon uh, several years ago when I was working in London. Um, and at that time, I really equated the entirety of our res resurrection life with the idea of power and authority and destiny. And these are things that we as charismatics love to talk about. But I think I was incomplete. I talked about how God 
was challenging us to pursue our dreams, that he had given us uh, an abundant life that looked like powerful success, a successful life that is laid out in our dreams and passions. These ideas actually are more based on uh, Western upper middle class values than they are on Christ values. I'm not saying that we don't have power. I'm not saying that we don't have authority. And I'm not even saying that we don't have destiny. But I'm saying that our power and our authority and our destiny are lived out as we are in Christ and as Christ, as Jesus. And power and authority and destiny that's lived out as Jesus According to Philippians chapter 2, Christ's power came through emptying himself. His authority came through humility. And his destiny was to suffer for others. So that looks a lot different than our Western idea of success. And I know that there are a lot of people in this day and age who are pursuing fame and glorious ministry and there's nothing wrong with that because that, that may be what God raises you to. But that is not the evidence of resurrected life. Fame, success. Yeah, God may, may bring those to you, but that's not the evidence of resurrected life. So when we think of resurrected life of Christ, we don't think of it in the way the world sees it. The evidence for resurrected life is to live as Christ. Awakened, yes, awakened to our full potential and fulfillment. But they're not tied to success as we see it in the, in the West. Rather, sometimes it's in spite of what sometimes feels like failure. I've shared recently about some of the dark stuff that I've been facing. Resurrection life doesn't mean you don't face the dark stuff. It means you have victory through the dark stuff. Resurrection life doesn't mean that all your ills will be automatically healed. Sometimes you have victory through the illness or the disability or the grief or the mourning. Resurrection is not just the returning to life of something that was dead. Actually, that's probably more like the definition of resuscitation. I think resurrection by its nature should also bring about other resurrections. So I think our resurrection should be evidenced by the resurrection of those around us, of the coming to life of those we come into contact with, the awakening of those. Resurrection rolls away stones. So just as Christ's resurrection brought our resurrection, so too our resurrection should bring about the resurrection of others. Though in truth, actually, it's Jesus' resurrection that really brought about everybody's resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will made, be made alive. Some people just don't know it. And sometimes we don't often know it to its fullest. Uh, has anyone seen this movie, The Sixth Sense? Okay. If you haven't seen it, I'm going to spoil the whole thing for you. So you've got five minutes to leave the room. <laughs> run, kids, run. 
You can come back in a few minutes. Don't go in the cafe because the speaker's on in there. <laughs> Woohoo! So except for these guys, if you haven't seen it, you've got no excuse because it's been out for 20 years. <laughs> so uh, the film's about a psychologist who, on the night he was given a major award, uh, ends up in the hospital after an encounter with a, a disgruntled patient. Um, after his recovery, he begins to counsel a young boy who he believes is having hallucinations. Um, the boy says, I see dead people. Um, but after a while, he begins to think there might be something to what this boy is seeing. And he helps them to begin to dispel the ghosts by helping them to move on. So in what I think is the most epic plot twist of movie history, we find out in the end that the psychologist is actually one of them. He's dead. And he just doesn't know it. He had been killed in this previous encounter. And he doesn't, he doesn't realize it. In a very similar way, so many people in this world are alive. Christ came to give life to all. They just don't know it. Those of us who do know the resurrection, we need to help them to move on, help those that don't know the resurrection of Christ, to be able to move on, to know that there is life, we need to continue, and we need to continue to awaken ourselves. I love how um, Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Like no one. Not just no one in here, but no one out there. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we no longer do so. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. It's gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled himself to us through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that we're rolling away stones. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making an appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So let me start wrapping up. Um, I want to show you a kind of a six-minute video of someone who, who knows the resurrection in his own life. And he shares the story of a friend's resurrection. You know, I'm an expert on nothing, but for uh, 34 years, I've worked with gang members. And, and apparently, President Benton thought that made me eminently suited to address the class of 2018. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, what Martin Luther King says about church could well be said about your time here at Pepperdine. It's not the place you've come to. It's the place you go from. And you go from here to create a community of kinship such that God, in fact, might recognize it. In fact, that is God's dream come true. No us and them, just 
us. And you imagine with God a circle of compassion, and then you imagine nobody standing outside that circle. And you know that God does not share in the demonizing in which we all engage in. And so you choose to go from here and you dismantle the barriers that exclude and you go out to the margins because that's the only way they'll get erased if you stand out at them. And you stand with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless and you stand with those whose dignity has been denied and you stand with those whose burdens are more than they can bear. And every one of the graduates here has had an exquisite mutual experience of knowing what it's like to stand with the easily despised and the readily left out. You go from here to stand with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop. And you stand with the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. Gonzaga University uh, called me and said uh, they, they had forced the incoming freshman class to read Tattoos on the Heart. And so I, you know, uh, I said, sure. And they said, can you bring two homies with you? And, and I said, sure. And they were going to have a big talk on a Tuesday night with 1,000 people. <laughs> so I picked these two guys, Bobby, an African-American gang member who worked in the bakery, and Mario, who worked in our mer merchandise store. I've done this hundreds and hundreds of times with men and women. Uh, I should tell you that Mario, in our 30-year history at Homeboy, is the most tattooed individual who's ever worked there. His arms are all sleeved out, neck blackened with the name of his gang, head shaved, covered in tattoos, forehead, cheeks, chin, eyelids that say the end, so that when he's lying in his coffin, there's no doubt. <laughs> and so I'd never been in public with him, and we're walking, and people are like this, and mothers are clutching their kids more closely. And I'm thinking, wow, isn't that interesting? Because if you were to go to Homeboy on Monday and ask anybody there who's the kindest, most gentle soul who works there, they won't say me. They'll say Mario. He's proof that only the soul that ventilates the world with tenderness has any chance of changing the world. So we uh, get to Gonzaga and they don't just have the talk at night, they have all these other talks throughout the day and I tell them, you get up and give those talks, I'm gonna sit in the back of the classroom. And they were terrified but they did a good job, stories of terror and torture and violence and abuse of every imaginable kind that led the audience to stand in awe at what these two had carried in their lives rather than in judgment at how they carried it. So the nighttime talk comes and it's a thousand people and I invite them up to share their stories in front of all these people for five minutes each and I do my thing and then I invite them up for Q&A and, and I said, yes ma'am, and a woman stands and she says, yeah, I got a question, it's for Mario. First question out the gate. And Mario steps up to the microphone. He's a tall drink of water, skinny, and clutching the microphone, and he's terrified. Yes. And she says, well, you say you're a father, and you have a son and a daughter who are about to enter their teenage years. What advice do you give them? And Mario clutches his microphone, and he's just terrified, and he's trembling, and he's getting a hernia trying to come up with whatever the hell he's going to say. When, when finally he blurts out, I just... I just don't want my kids to turn out to be like me. 
and there's silence until the woman who asked the question stands and now it's her turn to cry and she says, why wouldn't you want your kids to turn out to be like you? You are loving, you are kind, you are gentle, you are wise. I hope your kids turn out to be like you. And a thousand total perfect strangers stand and they will not stop clapping. And all Mario can do is hold his face in his hand so overwhelmed with emotion that this room full of people, strangers, had returned him to himself and they were returned to themselves. And I think that's the only praise God has any interest in. No kinship, no peace, no kinship, no justice, no kinship, no equality. Graduates, you go from here to stand at the margins because that's the only way they get erased and you brace yourselves because the world will accuse you of wasting your time. But the prophet Jeremiah writes, in this place of which you say it is a waste, there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness the voices of those who sing. And may God bless you as you go from this place. So what does resurrection look like? Resurrection looks like love. By the way, in, in, if you're interested, uh, his name is um, Father Greg Boyle. He is a Catholic priest who started a, or worked in a church in the roughest part of L.A. Um, and realized that to reach these gangs, these gang members, uh, he needed to come outside of what we thought of as church. And so he created a way for them to have jobs and to find life outside of the community that was about violence. And he's a demonstration of resurrection life. And the story he told about Mario demonstrates resurrection. A man who's was so convinced that he would die young that he had the end tattooed on his eyelids. And yet, the testimony of him being the most gentle and loving man ever. That's resurrection. We sang the song earlier, you give life, your love, you bring light to the darkness. I want to say, you give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness. His breath is in our lungs. So let's breathe life to those around us. Just a couple more kind of side thoughts before I wrap up. One, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. And then he laid down his life for his enemies. The despised, the broken. There is no e Easter without Good Friday. 
There's no resurrection without death. Even Paul understood this when he talked about it in, in Philippians 3.7. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We have resurrection through Jesus, but I think we tap into our own resurrection as we learn to die. Die to what we think of as success, die to what we think of as comfort, and as we take up our cross and lay down our lives for those around us, that brings resurrection. And the second thing is it's a process. It's not an event. We focus primarily on Paul's words because he uses the idea of resurrection widely, but we should note that Paul was talking to an audience that had a, was deeply influenced by Greek philosophy and saw things in a split, in a dual way. And so he, he spoke in terms of an ontological change, a change of nature. And there's some truth to that, but Jesus taught more in terms of process. For example, when he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their very soul? We die every day, or we should. We should take up our cross every day so that we would rise every day for those around us to roll away the stones on others' graves. The cross that Jesus took up wasn't for himself, and our cross shouldn't be for ourselves either. We should take up the cross to carry it for others so that we might demonstrate what real resurrection is. Amen?